thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, broadcasting from PPM-TV, that's Portsmouth Public Media Television, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to those watching and listening, and especially to our in-studio audience. Give yourselves a hand, we're so happy you're here. It was such a gorgeous day. I wasn't so sure we needed all these chairs, but we did. All right, our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. We do encourage the um, development of storytelling skills. We have monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, but this is not a competition. We don't have any ranking, scoring, or judging. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that's why we're here. Tonight's show doesn't have a specific theme. It's going to be all exciting hodgepodge of stories. We have six tellers, Tom Osberg, Pat Spaulding, Kathy Wolf, Al Portia, Mike Cohen, and Tina Charpentier. They each have 10 minutes in which to tell their story. Pat Spaulding, our MC tonight, will first introduce each of them to you. After the storytelling, there'll be an interview of one of the tellers. Tonight, it's Mike Cohen. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up to introduce our first teller. Come on up, Pat. Hi, everybody. I'm really happy to see such a great turnout. This is so cheerful. Um, first up, we have Tom Ostberg. He lives in Wyndham, New Hampshire, and works as a robotic software programmer. He is also a hobby beekeeper who canoes and camps, has hiked the Appalachian Trail, and constantly daydreams about getting lost on canoe trails in the great North Woods, don't we all? <laughs> While daydreaming at the desk of his day job, Tom is always thinking stories. For years, he told, told tales of his camping adventures to families, Boy Scouts, youth groups, but now that his five kids are all grown and out of the house, they apparently have encouraged him to start telling these stories to others. So we are the beneficiaries of your children telling you not to stop. Get them out there. Although Tom claims that they are all true, he refers to them as Tom Tall Tales, which is also the name of his website, TomTallTales.com and a new tongue twister. Tonight's story is about the adventure, or possibly misadventure, of a, a young Boy Scout and a near miss. Its title is, There Was Mist on the Trail. <laughs> Come on up, Tom. Yeah. I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared when I saw the, the wet leaves change to granite on the trail. I, I wasn't scared when I saw the mist among the dark 
black roots, it was when I felt the ground shaking, when, when I felt a thrumming in my chest that I looked up. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Uh, this all started when I was 10 years old. I was just a Cub Scout. My, my father really wanted to be in Scouts. He, he wanted to go on the Maine Wilderness 100-mile trip with, you know, no roads and way out there. And he knew the Scoutmaster, Dr. Siegel. So he chatted him up, and he got us on the roster anyway, even though I didn't have the merit badges or the, the requirements. And there we were up in the great north woods. And it was fabulous. We saw a moose and their calves out by the lake feeding. We, we heard the loons at night and the, the old call that is kind of haunting. We saw northern lights. We, we slept in tents, ate by campfire. The stars at night just made you wonder why, wonder why. They assigned an older scout to me named Todd, who was about my height, about my weight. So we had our own canoe. And Dr. Siegel, I think, was a type A personality, because when, we when we were practicing, he, he taught us with slideshows and handouts about the downstream V, which is when there's a rock just under the surface. You had to be careful, so you had to go around it. Or the upstream V, where there's two rocks under the surface. You had to go between, unless there was a rooster tail, which could capsize you at the end. <laughs> so, and, and then they had the, the dry practice, where you'd practice the sweep, or the J-stroke, or the cross-bow rudder. And then you had pool times, where you would do the pull two, so you could uh, you know, land the canoe. Me and Todd were just real experts at this at after a while, we, we thought we were the cat's meow. We were, we were doing everything. Every day on this 10-day trip, we were eight days into it, we ran some rapids. We were doing really, really well. Somehow, after eight days, we were the lead canoe. I, I think it was because we were the best. We were just so good. It could be because the Scoutmaster's sons were just fighting all the time, and he was distracted. But on this day... We came to a pool of water we knew before a rapids that was coming before a campsite. And, and it was just like the river ended. There was a silver line across the horizon. You could just see the tips of trees above it <laughs> reflected. And, and there was a slight mist coming up. It was like it, when you hold a glass and the, the surface tension holds the water above it, the rocks were holding back the water just enough so it was trying and dying to go over the edge. So Todd sits up as much as he can. He looks over the edges trying to figure it out. And he picked the left because the left is where most of the current was going. And we knew that the left would be deeper rather than the small with the rocks and the shallower. So we yelled, pull, pull! And we're pulling and we're going down the left just as... The water picked us up and shoved us over the edge. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a board on a rock fly by with some writing on it. Too late. So we're running down, and there's a rooster tail, and we just skirted the rooster tail. Pull left, pull left, pull left, and then pull right, pull right. We caught an eddy, and we eddied out, and it's just unbelievable noise and spray, and we're doing real well. We're sitting there in the eddy, and Todd's yelling back, 
hey, there's a guy, uh, there's a man on the shore over there. And I look up, and sure enough, there's a man on the shore with no canoe. And he was waving at us. And I'm like, well, he'll have to talk to the scoutmaster. The scoutmaster will be coming along any minute. So we peel out into the current again. And we're pull left, and we're on down, crash some rocks. Pull right, pull right. The, the current is getting down into a real chute now. But we are a well-oiled machine. We're like, pull left, pull right, pull left, pull right. It's getting faster and faster and furious, but we're really feeling good about it. And then Todd's yelling, hey, there's the man again. He looks like he's in trouble. The man on the bank is yelling and jumping up and down with his arms. And we're like, oh, geez, we're scouts. We're going to have to help him. So we, we pull over. It's just taking us forever. We're bouncing against rocks. Sometimes we have to back paddle against the current. It's murder. Finally, we pull into the bank, and we pull up just as the guy walks into the woods. We walk up behind him, and just as we get into the woods, it's like quiet away from the river. And we had all these questions, but it was, just felt like you couldn't ask anything. And then the trail, the, the cold, dark leaves changed to granite. And then, and then we saw the mist. And, and there was dripping from the bushes. And when we looked up, we saw light from an opening. And we stepped out of the forest onto a parapet above a huge waterfall. The entire river swept around the edge, went down over these falls. Huge, huge tree trunks were smashing to pieces. The ferocity of the of the wind from it was blowing our hat and our shirts back. We grabbed each other's arms in terror, looking at it. And we turned to the man. But we were alone. We, we waited, and the rest of the scouts came up. And we didn't say anything. We never said anything. And all the scouts threw things in and watched them disappear and tried to yell over the but they couldn't yell over the falls. And I look back on that, and I, I wonder why that little boy didn't die. Me. I wonder why. And even now, sometimes, there are times when I have close calls and near misses, and I look around for that man, and I wonder why. Pat Spaulding, <clears throat> MC of this, this True Tales Life program, is a writer and storyteller who makes her home in Rye, New Hampshire. She has been married and single, a puppeteer, and not a puppeteer, but always a storyteller who has been telling first-person experiences locally and further afield since the 1980s. Pat is one of those people who studied mime in her youth and still considers it a valid career move. <laughs> she enjoys dress-up occasions, the celebrity of being a majorette with the left-wing marching band. Leftist. leftist. <laughs> my bad, my bad. The leftist marching band. And by contrast, spending lots of quiet time at her lake cabin camp. It has no road 
no electricity, no plumbing, and no neighbors. But it has lots of stories. They can be found there. And Pat will tell us one of those stories, those camp stories, tonight. And its title is, What Comes in Threes? Pat? The lightning and thunder were pretty simultaneous, which means that the storm was right over the lake. It was coming on fast and strong. I could see the water coming across the lake, sheets of rain, and the wind begin to blow the trees around. So I ran into the cabin, pushed the door shut, pulled the windows down, and cowered in the bedroom because that was the furthest away from where a big, tall... King Pine might fall, I figured maybe the kitchen. Because the last year, we lost 30 trees in a microburst. This felt like one of those microbursts. I was by myself, but what could you do? So I hovered and uh, read a book under my little headlamp to think about other things until the storm cleared and um, opened the door. And I heard voices. Nobody was with me. Nobody should be on the lake. I heard them again, came down the steps, and I saw three figures in my screen house. Three figures in my screen house. So I went up and said, hey, how you doing? And these three guys jumped back and said, oh, sorry, I didn't know you were here. We tried to get away from the storm, but because um, I've got a, a, a plate in my head, a metal plate in my head, and, and the lightning was coming, and I need, it's okay, it's okay, I understand, it's all right. It was uh, Dave, Mark, and their son, um, Isaac. And they just needed some quick shelter from the storm. They were shivering, they were soaked. I brought him into the camp, gave him some hot tea, exchanged stories for, I don't know, 45 minutes until the storm was definitely done and then they went on their way in an aluminum boat on the lake. <laughs> <laughs> My day had changed considerably. Where I was feeling, you know, alone and kind of scared, now, hey, I had friends. <laughs> Three guys, who knows? <laughs> camp. It reminded me of a day that changed 20, no, 12 years before that. I was at camp with my dad, and um, things weren't good. But he had jaw cancer, had gone down to Mass Ioneer for a, a pretty bad surgery that left him with a disfigured face and a crooked smile, and uh, was recently told that it was terminal. My marriage was also terminal. These were not good times. Things, was, things would change. It was imminent. And um, Dad and I had been just keeping camp running, and my ex-husband, David, for the last several years. And now I was going to be by myself to keep this all going. And at the cocktail area at night at the lake, the night before, Dad had said, you can't keep this place. Not all by yourself. There's too much to do. you got to jack it up every year. I mean, it's going to fall off the pins. you got to pull the dock in and take it out, and you got to run a boat and a motor. You don't know how to do all those things and patch the roof. Sell it. You'll get a lot of money. Give somebody else, some family like, like ours, with kids, a chance to enjoy the place, you know, like we did. He was right, practically speaking. I mean, there's no younger person to help me. There was no sibling. It was me. 
I'd be doing all this. So the next morning, I was on the dock with my coffee and my journal, and I was writing a list, you know, sell, keep, pros, cons, like they do if you're trying to make a big decision. Dad was busying himself off at the cabin with uh, mixing cement or something. I hear the sound of laughter, women's laughter. And then I look over on the point. There are three primary colored canoes rounding the point, red, yellow, and blue. <laughs> and more women's laughter and then a song. It's been a hard day's night and I've been sleeping like a dog. A Beatles song, singing women in kayaks, headed my way across the cove. I went back to writing and then the singing stopped. Okay, I've been spotted. Sure enough, they paddle up to the dock. Hi, why is there a dock here in the middle of the woods? And I explained, well, there's a cabin, you can't see it. Really? And a little more about, no electricity, no plumbing, no road? Oh my God, where do you bathe? Well, I indicate the lake. Oh, Teresa, didn't I tell you we were going to have an adventure? Skinny dipping. <laughs> they introduced themselves as the ladies of the Purple Plumes, which is a Manchester branch of the Red Hat Society. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then one of them says, that, oh, it was Christine, Evelyn, and Teresa. And Christine says, oh, oh, uh, you're busy, you're writing. Well, sorry to bother you. Uh, we promised ourselves that we would paddle the whole lake today, right, ladies? Circumnavigation, yeah, circumnavigation. We'll be back. <laughs> I must have nodded because that afternoon, sure enough, they come back, point their kayaks toward the dock. Hi, Pat, you're still writing. Shouldn't you be doing something better? It's a nice day. Have you gone skinny dipping yet? Oh, well, well. <laughs> before I had a chance to invite them, they had pulled their kayaks ashore and they were following me down the path to meet my father. I told them dad's name and so as soon as he came into sight, they all three of them said in unison, hi, Don. Dad looks at me and says, oh, I don't know. And uh, then exuberantly, um, hey, nice place you got here, Don. Did you build it yourself? Well, the cabin is over 100 years old. No, he did not build it himself. <laughs> But he graciously took off a work glove and shook their hands and then, can we see the inside? And then he showed them around inside. Oh my God, look at that iron, cast iron sink and a hand pump. They still make those, does it work? And oh, look at that stove. Oh, that wood stove, bacon cooking in the morning. Wouldn't that be one? And a hand crank coffee grinder. Oh my God, this place is rustic, but romantic, said Teresa. Don. Can we move inland and live here with you? <laughs> Dad, who had no reason to smile in a long time, looked down. I was pretty sure he might be hiding a smile. We took him outside and showed him the grounds, and then they all had to pee. So I pointed to the path that went to the outhouse when Dad said, uh, well, you might want to keep to the left. Go straight first, keep to the right, and..." You read the sign on the old outhouse, the condemned one, but don't use that. Then go to the left. Okay. So Christine bopped up the, the, the path, and she came down all giggles and said, I'm not going to say a thing. Just go read the sign. And the other two went up, and then they came back laughing, saying, Donald, you are a stitch. My father had painted on the door of the no longer used condemned outhouse in black letters, historical site, and then he crossed off the letter E on site. <laughs> historical site. Donald, you are a funny man. 
Pat, have you gone skinny dipping yet? Well, you know, now they're all ready to go back to the dock and skinny dip. No peeking, Dawn! Of course, Dad is like, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> and uh, Evelyn says, Donald, you look like a man with quite an imagination to me. Dad sets down his wheelbarrow, looks at Evelyn and says, well, you know, you may be right about that. Imagination is probably the last thing to go, and I guess I still do have some of that left. <laughs> the women laughed and teased him, and then Dad resumed his work while they followed me down to the dock, and we all <coughs> undressed behind trees much too narrow to hide our various girths and took the naked plunge into the lake. Now, I am used to this. I skinny dip all the time. Cabin is a very private place. Like, there's nobody there. So, you know, this was not new to me, but it was to them. Christine lay back, and she said, oh, my God, this is wonderful. The water is so, so everywhere. (laughs) This is better than kayaking. Interjected Evelyn. There might have been a time, Pat, when Christine would have said this is better than sex, but now, kayaking, that's our new standard of excellence. Sex, well, sex is just, I don't know, back there someplace. So we swam, we floated, we tread water until everybody was ready to exit that wonderful lake. And uh, we climbed out, dried off put our clothes back on for five minutes. It was quiet. Unnervingly, nobody said anything. I finally broke the silence by asking them how they met. Were the red hats? And Christine said, well, no. No, Actually, we met at a cancer support group several years ago. And then, after a few years, things were okay. So that morphed into a book group, but it was boring. So we found the red hats. And one night, a guy from EMS came to a meeting and he told us about all the wonderful outdoor adventures we could have if, if we bought everything in the store. So we did. <laughs> and that, Evelyn said, is how we got to meet you and your dad through kayaking, Pat. And that's why kayaking is better than sex, because no matter where you do it or who you do with it, do it with, you are guaranteed to have a good time. <laughs> At that moment, Dad was walking down the path. <laughs> Donald, have you been eavesdropping? Dad says, oh, no, no, it was just quiet around here. I was worried. Well, they gave him big hugs, and they hugged me, thanked us for this wonderful day. But before... Evelyn let go of my father. She touched his broken face. And she looked right into his eyes and said, Donald, it's been a real pleasure to meet you. And Dad met her gaze. He didn't look down. He just smiled, his crooked smile. Then the ladies of the purple plumes paddled away. And the lake returned to its quiet, pensive, thoughtful, flatness. Except now it was blessed with the exuberant joy of three spirited women who 
showed up to <laughs> laugh and tease and flirt with my father and cajole him into returning his smile. I didn't sell camp. <laughs> I'm ready to introduce the next storyteller. I always forget that after I tell a story. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you, that was fun. Next up we have Kathy Wolf. She lives in Kittery, Maine, where lately she's been pulling up a lot of weeds. I know the feeling. If anyone has a surefire method of getting rid of gout weed, please see Kathy after the show. She is a writer who over the years has plied her trade for the Associated Press, UNH, Dartmouth, and Tufts. And um, <clears throat> she has published personal essays, has told stories right here at True Tales Live, and also at 3S with Long Story Short. Last fall, she stepped onto the stage at the Players' Ring as an actor in Generic's theater production of Good People. You told me to say that. <laughs> yes, you did. It's right here. And she was good. I saw that show. It was excellent. You can step onto the stage, you know. Mm, yeah, well. Okay, so now, audience, <laughs> when was the last time that you thought of backyard bomb shelters, emergency supplies in the basement, air raid drills, and the Cuban Missile Crisis? Anybody? I, I think of it daily. <laughs> If not recently, let Kathy remind us of that history in her story, Duck and Cover. Come on up, Kathy. It's 1954. I'm five years old. I'm under an ironing board that's set up in the living room in front of the TV. My mother is ironing a sheet. It billows down in front of me like the, the curtain on a stage. I'm there because my mother told me there was a witch hunt on TV. I'd rather be out playing, but she said, come watch the witch hunt. She has been ironing in front of that TV every afternoon this week and watching it intently. But all I see is a bunch of men yelling at each other and sometimes saying, are you now or have you ever been? And I don't see any witches. Where are the witches? I yell up from under the ironing board. Under your bed, my mother says. It took me several years before I realized what under your bed was alluding to. And it was Senator Joe McCarthy who saw a communist under every bed, especially among those in the Army and those in the State Department and those in the film industry and those who were writers and those who were artists and those who were intellectuals and everywhere. I didn't know what all that was about when I was five, but I felt, even under that ironing board, a sense of unease, of dread, of, although I couldn't call it that at age five, of fear. Something was wrong. I spent a good portion of my childhood waiting for World War III. I think a lot of people in my generation did, we boomers. It's not that I didn't have a good childhood, I did. I caught fireflies in the summer, made snowman, had my bike, had my gang, wrote really bad poetry. No, I had a good childhood. <laughs> but um, there was always this unease, this anxiety uh, underneath everything else. That same summer, Jane Wilner, Janie Wilner moved in down the street. 
She came from the city. We were living on Long Island in New York. She came from Brooklyn. Janie was wearing a chain around her neck, and it had a little tag on it with her name on it. And she told me, everyone in my old school wore this, which meant kindergarten, because we were just heading into first grade. And I said, why? And she said, so when the bomb falls and we're all killed, they'll know who we were. I said, what bomb? She said, the atomic bomb, stupid. And then she went, boom. I figured, because she was from the city, she knew a lot more than me. So we went off to school. And in the first week, I believe, and for twice a month, every year of grade school, we had an air raid drill. The siren would go off, and the teacher would yell, duck and cover. And we would all duck under our desks and pull our knees up to our chest and put our hands over our heads and wait, either to die or for the signal to go on again and tell us we could get out from under our desks. Now and then, this teacher would say, line up instead of duck and cover, and we would be marched down to the uh, cafeteria in the school where we would duck and cover under the uh, cafeteria tables. I like the classroom better because under the cafeteria tables, it smelled like spoiled milk. To this day, spoiled milk makes me think of nuclear war. <laughs> so, um, there were some people, oh, in our classrooms also, at least by the third grade, there was a large map. I'm sure a lot of you here remember them because I'm looking out and realizing many of you are boomers. So uh, a large map that showed a red blob and then tiny Europe and then the small Atlantic Ocean and us. And it really <coughs> made the threat seem real, the red scare of the Cold War. In our neighborhood, there were a few people who were digging holes in their yards. And I went to my father and said, can we have a bomb shelter, please? Can we have a bomb shelter? You're going to make a bomb shelter? He said, you're ridiculous. But he and mom both carried lots of tuna fish, lots of baked beans, and lots of water down to the basement and put them under the stairs. Judy Kahn's father was digging the biggest hole in the neighborhood. And Judy was one of my best friends. So Saturday mornings, I'd get on my bike. I'd ride up to Judy's house to play with her. But I'd always stop and talk to Mr. Kahn, who was digging away. And Mr. Kahn, that's a really great hole. Bet you're going to have a great bomb shelter. He wouldn't answer me much. He'd just keep working. But I was hoping when the bomb came, he'd keep me in mind and let me in. <laughs> but, um, we moved out of Long Island into Iowa when I was about 13. It's October 1962. I'm 14. I'm sitting in my attic room. It's evening. I don't have the light on. I do have the radio on. President Kennedy is talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, as it came to be known. He's talking about red alert, about embargo, about loaded Russian missiles, about doing everything we have to do to defend ourselves. Dinner, my mother yells up the stairs, and I go down from my dark attic to a brightly lit kitchen where my sister and brother and mother and father are all sitting at the table. We had, I remember it to this day, pork chops, applesauce, mashed potatoes, and peas from can. My sister is talking about a date she's going to have that weekend. She's two years older than me, so she's dating already. My brother is eyeing the mashed potatoes, making sure he can get the second serving. My mother's telling me about some chores she wants me to do on Saturday, and I am screaming inside, what is the matter with you people? Don't you know this may be our last meal ever? Don't you know that bomb's going to fall? But I didn't say anything out loud. 
By then, I had read John Hersey's Hiroshima, and, uh, which we said back then instead of Hiroshima, because we didn't know any better. And I had uh, images of the skin falling off my body when the bomb came. Um, I, washed, I dried the dishes that my sister had washed and put them away and went back upstairs to my attic room. I did not turn on the light. I did not turn on the radio. I lay down on the uh, blue shag carpeting and I pulled my knees up and I put my hands over my head and I cried. Luckily, we didn't blow up then. And for whatever reason, I put my fears of nuclear war on a shelf in the back of the closet for the rest of high school. I mean, I had a lot of things in high school. There were football games to go to with boys. There were boys to go out with. There was uh, who's dating who to talk about. And then there was my pantomime troupe, of course. So. <laughs> Uh, so I was pretty busy until the summer before my senior year, which was the summer of 1965. And in that summer, first the Turtles, then Barry McGuire, and eventually, maybe not in that summer, but later, Jan and Dean, put out recordings of this same song called Eve of Destruction. It became our anthem. And for me, it reached deep into my gut and brought back all of that visceral fear and dread and unease that I had when I was five. And uh, luckily, I don't remember the words. So it didn't go in that deep, but it was, can't you feel the fear I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the wor world in a grave. But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, <laughs> you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. It became our class anthem. <laughs> Until, of course, a song came along that was, I got to get out of this place if it's the last thing I ever do, which was perfect for getting out of high school. And in the spring of 66, that became, that replaced Eve of Destruction. I went off to college and, of course, Vietnam. I marched, I protested, I struck when the student strikes. I worried. I had friends who died. I had friends who went to Canada. Um, but I never really thought we would nuke. Every time someone said, let's just nuke them, or worse, let's nuke the gooks, I would feel that same gut feeling, except now I also felt anger. After college, oh, after college, I ended up with a job, then a husband and a kid. Didn't think much about nuclear war, but one day, I'm sitting in my office in Boston, and the intern goes, oh my God, the towers had fallen. I called my son. I said, stay home. Don't leave the house. I got back as fast as I could. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for all my life. This is World War III. It's going to happen. Late that night, after Tyler had gone out with his friends, after I had talked to my mother and sister on the phone, after I had come back from a candlelight vigil in Market Square, I sat down on the couch with the lights off, pulled my knees up to my chin, lowered my head, and realized I wasn't afraid. I felt deep, deep despair. And all I could say was to myself over and over again, please, 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 don't let this be an excuse for yet another war. But of course, it was. Thank you, Kathy. This is definitely the boomer set. I um, identified with everything you said. I was right there. As was Al Porsche, who's coming up next. 
Al is retired and lives in Lee, New Hampshire with his wife of 40 years. He has a master's degree in counseling and has worked as an academic counselor for Granite State College while teaching courses in critical thinking and statistics. In the latter part of his career, Al worked for the Vet Center, counseling returning veterans of our many wars, <laughs> ongoing thing, to more successfully manage and heal the inevitable emotional and spiritual wounds that result from their war experiences. Playing piano has always been an important part of his life. Since his retirement, Al has been giving and taking lessons and regularly playing music with friends. His story takes place in a time fraught with change, challenge, and social upheaval, the Vietnam era. Its title is, AKA, The Hitchhiker. Come on up, Al. I'd like to tell you a story tonight. It's a true tale. And it's about, uh, I had a time when I had a brush with the law. I borrowed an identity. There's a loaded gun. And it's about the lengths I would and would not go in defiance of the law. So I had just uh, returned stateside after a year's deployment in Vietnam, where I was a combat veteran. And I decided that uh, I was going to take an extended vacation from the military, an unauthorized extended vacation from the military. I went AWOL. So I spent the next year hitchhiking all around the United States with an assumed identity, Paul Michael Daly, which certainly came in handy because when I'd be hitchhiking on the interstates, what would often happen is state police car would pull up, because you weren't supposed to hitchhike on the interstates, and invite you into the car and ask to see your ID, and then say, is anybody looking for you, Paul? Fortunately, the real Paul Michael Daly had recently graduated from law school. He lived on a commune in rural Maryland. He was an avowed Marxist, and he was more than happy to give his ID to someone who, as he said, was leaving the war machine. <laughs> so after about six months of hitchhiking back and forth, traversing the country many times, one particular day, I ran into a string of bad luck in terms of getting a ride. I was just outside of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And after about eight hours of nobody stopping, I decided to walk down the ramp. There was a truck stop. And Cheyenne was about five miles away, and so I asked uh, what would be the best way to go into town. And the, the guy at the truck stop, he said, uh, I don't think you want to do that. He said, it's Frontier Days being celebrated in town, and the cowboys are rounding up all the, the hippies, and they're shaving their hair off, shaving their beards, cutting their hair off. And if you saw that picture of me on the program there, you can see that going into Cheyenne uh, wasn't an option for me. I, sh I should mention that uh, 10 was wanted FBI. That's the joke part, but the picture's real. So I trudge back up the ramp, going back up into the interstate, and suddenly a late model Lincoln Continental stops. Well, this is an unusual event. When a Volkswagen bus didn't stop, that was bad. But Lincolns and Cadillacs, forget about it. They never stopped. So I jog up to the car, open the door, I'm really grateful to get this ride, 
And I said to the solo driver, I said, where are you headed? He's heading east. I said, how far east are you going? He said, I'm going to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I said, Pittsburgh, that's my hometown. Count me in for the ride. I was trying to get to Omaha, Nebraska to see a friend, but we can do that later. <laughs> so off we go down the road. And uh, after a short while, he said to me, do you get high? Well, this was not an uncommon question in those days to be asked, especially when the people who picked you up were other hippies and looked like me. But uh, this guy was clean-cut businessman type, uh, mid-30s, so it was a bit of a surprise. Of course, I said yes. And he said, well, there's a, that briefcase between us, a very nice, expensive leather briefcase. He said, uh, open that up. So I went and moved the briefcase over onto my lap, and, but before I opened it, he pulled a gun out from under his seat. He said, I want you to know I have this for my own protection. I said, put the gun away. I'm not going to rob you, no problem. So he puts the gun back under the seat. I open the briefcase, and it's a veritable cornucopia of illegal drugs. There was many ounces of marijuana. There was cocaine. There was hashish, hallucinogens, uppers, downers, typical street drugs of the time. No hard drugs, no heroin. So we proceeded to sample several of the items from the case <laughs> and cruising down the highway. And after a couple of hours, uh, John was the driver's name. John said to me, he said, uh, you know, I've been driving nonstop since my uh, home, uh, my ranch in Napa Valley, California. I really need to crash. He said, can you drive this a Lincoln? I said, I grew up driving Lincolns. Just pull over. No problem. <laughs> so we pull over, switch seats, and... Down the road we go. So we spent the next 40 hours driving nonstop, taking turns, stopping only for fuel and coffee. I mean, what else did you need with the briefcase that we had? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're sailing across the country, telling our stories. And after about 40 hours, we're driving across Ohio. John's driving. And he said, I, I forgot to tell you, I got to stop into Kent, Ohio for a couple hours for a business meeting. He said, I can leave you off on the side of the road. Or he said, you can come with me into town, It'll just take a couple hours. I said, I wouldn't plan to be anywhere near Pittsburgh at this point in my life. What's another couple hours? I'll go with you. That was probably a mistake. So off we go into the town of Kent State, or Kent, Ohio, and drive up to a garden apartment complex just off the campus of Kent State, Ohio. I remember John and I going up to the second floor and knocking on the door. And this college-type guy, young guy, answers the door. And it's like, oh, John is here, he announces to the other people in the apartment. Everyone's happy to see John. So in we go, and there's four or five other college-type guys in there, and a big party commences. There's much, much more cocaine that's consumed at this point. We're doing shots of tequila. It's a great party. Everyone's talking. Everyone's having a great time. And suddenly there's this <laughs> knock at the door, ominous-sounding knock. But no, it wasn't the police. They opened the door, and in come these two guys who did not look like college students. They certainly looked more like pro professional criminals or gangsters. And the one guy immediately starts to get into a verbal confrontation with John, the guy who I arrived with in the Lincoln. And it gets pretty heated. This guy's talking about John cutting in on his territory, supplying drugs to Kent State, and there's talk about bodily harm. And then suddenly this guy who's doing all the talking, the other one, it turns out, was his bodyguard. He notices me, and he says, who's, and he knows, he notices he doesn't know me, never seen me before. He says, who's that? Oh, he's the hitchhiker from Cheyenne. <laughs> so at this point, 
they all move to a back bedroom, except they leave one of the college types out to keep an eye on me. So I'm beginning to think I've gotten myself into a bit of a dicey situation here. So I'm trying, I thought I'd try and assess what was going on. So I said to this guy they left out to keep an eye on me, I said, you know, one of the things I really like about hitchhiking around the country and the way I've been doing is you get to meet people and you get involved in situations you just never come into contact with in your average day-to-day -day life. And he said, yeah, and I'll bet some of you wish you never did, which did nothing to lower my paranoia. At that point, I picked up a book on herbal medicine from the, the coffee table and tried to read it, but I couldn't even focus, you know, I was so freaked out at this point. Meanwhile, there's voices rising and falling, doors slamming, people coming and going for what seemed like a long time, but probably was only about half an hour. Eventually, the two guys, the heavies, leave, and then John reappears with the other people from the apartment and says to me, I guess you'd like to be getting on to Pittsburgh. I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, but I still had my dots that uh, I was out of the woods in terms of what was going on. So we leave the apartment and get back in the car, and as we're driving away to get back to the highway, John starts to tell me about all the different people in the room, the two guys that looked like gangsters were backed by some crime family in Detroit, and he's telling me stuff about his business, and I'm thinking, I don't want to know this stuff. Why is he telling me? He's telling me this because he brought me on the scene. I now have information could get them all locked up. It's his job to get rid of me. You'll remember, as I was, I know he's got the gun under the seat, and furthermore, he knows that I'm traveling the country under an assumed identity, if I were to disappear, there's nobody going to be looking for me for a very long time, if ever. So I'm still very paranoid about what's going to happen here. It's about 90 miles from Kent to the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was also at this point in time that John said, oh, you know, with all that stuff that went down with those guys, I'm not going into Pittsburgh now. I'm going right to the airport because I've got to fly back to the, the West Coast. So as we're approaching the, it seemed that 90-minute drive was a long drive in my mind, but as we're approaching the airport, which is about 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh, he winds up taking these backcountry roads that run parallel to the extremities of the runway where the jets are taking off. And I'm thinking, oh, this is where it's going to happen, you know? Jet taking off, a couple of gunshots, no one ever hear it. But no, we wind up driving to the front entrance to the airport, and John makes a little speech about how it was fate that we had crossed paths and uh, that we were... Uh, you know, he was going to take a chance on me. So he gives me his name and address and, and his ranch in Napa Valley. And I said, oh, I'll be sure to look you up next time I'm back out that way. And he said, I hope so. He drives off into the airport. I hitchhike into the city, go to a friend's house. Don't go out of the house for three days. I'm like, not going out for anything. <laughs> a couple of months later, I'm back on the West Coast hitchhiking from San Francisco to Portland, Oregon. About 30 miles outside of the city, there's a sign for the turnoff to Napa Valley. I didn't for a second consider altering my course north to Portland, Oregon. It's one thing to be beyond the law because I refused to participate in their war any longer. But there was never any question that neither Paul Michael Daly or Al Porsche would get involved with a drug dealer. Thank you. <laughs> Alrighty then. <laughs> Two trips in the Wayback Machine. <laughs> and now we're going to go to um, Montana. Um, Mike Cohen lives in Woburn, Massachusetts. He is a web de developer, 
and a member of the Gang of Six, a group that keeps the story space going, which Mike claims is the world's longest running weekly storytelling venue. In the world. In the world. I forgot the world part. Over 26 years now. But the world is a big place, Mike. But <laughs> Okay, in the world. Um, he has biked solo from Seattle to Boston three times. Tonight, he'll describe a man, a fully loaded touring bike, and one day's journey into night across a vast, empty stretch of Montana. <laughs> and now, Meager County. Montana is very big and pretty empty. I know, I've biked across it three times. The day before, June 26, 2007, I had stopped at Avon, Montana, which is a little town in the mountains, the foothills of the Rockies, on the back way to Helena, the capital of Montana. I put up my one-man tent next to the schoolhouse in this big open area in the middle of town. During the night, the temperature apparently fell to 30 degrees because the next morning, after I got up and took off pretty much every piece of clothing I had brought with me and packed up my bike, loaded everything in the panniers, and went to get breakfast at the diner by the road, someone was complaining about how their tomato plants had frozen. That's how I knew it was 30 degrees. The thing about Avon is it's the last town before Clark Pass. And Clark Pass is how someone like me on a bicycle gets over the Rocky Mountains. It goes up and it goes up and it goes up, and it goes up, and when you finally get to the top and look back, it's like, ooh. <laughs> and it has a little sign, says something like 5,800 feet elevation, which is low for the Rockies, but it's a pass. And then you go down. And I was riding the brakes for 11 miles downhill <laughs> because I did not want to go faster than the logging trucks. Have you ever seen a logging truck with the metal things and the huge logs piled up? You, I did not want to be going downhill with logging trucks right behind me. I made it down safely, went through Helena, went through East Helena, where Billboards proudly proclaim lead smelting capital of the world. <laughs> I tried not to breathe too much after that. And through to Townsend to stop and get more water to rehydrate myself because I turned loop back and went on Route 12 through Deep Creek Canyon, which runs through a national forest. And I rode on my own some, I just rode this narrow winding road between mountains and this big pine forest and got to this little picnic area. One table and some mysterious building that was locked up. It wasn't a rest station, it was just a building and it was locked. And I 
cook dinner on my stove and set up my little one-man tent and crawled in. And sometime during the night, something came walking out of the bushes and came over and started snuffling at my tent. It could have been a large dog. It could have been a deer. It could have been a bear. I really did not want to open the flap of my tent and find out that it was a bear. So I just lay there until it gave up and went away. The next morning, I tried to rehydrate myself with all the extra water I had, which meant that I was not severely dehydrated, just dehydrated, packed up everything, and kept going down this deep creek canyon between these mountains and pine forests, and the road just gradually rose up, and it rose up, and it rose up, not quite like the Clark Pass, but it rose up and it rose up, and I got to the top, and the state, the National Forest ended as though it had been marked off with a ruler, and there in front of me was Meager County. Now this was named after Thomas Marr, an Irishman who had an interesting life, so it's not pronounced Meager County, but when I saw the vista of absolutely nothing. I said, this is the most appropriately named place in the world, Meager County. There's not two things nailed together in here. And in the distance was just a little heap of what the map said were the chocolate mountains, which I don't want to offend you, but looked more like a heap of loose, watery stools. <laughs> and the road to White Sulphur Springs, which is the most unfriendly place I ever ran into in three trips across the country. Just walking into a diner or a restaurant to get breakfast was like a scene in a Western movie. The music stops, everyone <laughs> stops talking, their heads turn, stranger in town. <laughs> I sat down at a table and waited 20 minutes and realized no one was coming over to serve me. So I got out of there. I went to the other side of town, which to a place where they didn't talk to me, but they were willing to serve me breakfast. <laughs> and then I got on the road for checkerboard. It was 100 degrees at this point, and there was an incredible headwind, by which I mean this incredible wind coming straight at me. And it took me four hours to go 16 miles to checkerboard. I had two flats. I wound up riding the bike, pushing the bike, riding the bike. One, one set of people stopped. They were in a flatbed truck. They said, hey, get in, put the bike in the back. The back of the truck was filled with coils of razor wire. <laughs> you don't know what razor wire is. It makes barbed wire look cuddly. So I would not, after already having two flats, I was not putting the bike on top of razor wire. So I said, thank you, thank you, but I'll press on. So after four hours, I made it to checkerboard, which consisted of three picnic tables, two trailers, and a bar. The thing you have to know about Montana is that to be a town, you need two things, a bar and an annual festival. <laughs> So I don't know what Checkerboard did for their annual festival, but 
there was the one bar. And I went inside and I put it down to gentrification or the fact that more people from the West Coast were moving in and the place was getting Californicated <laughs> because they were friendly to me as opposed to the previous times when they weren't. And I actually sat and had something else to eat and drink and talk to people. And then I got back on the road. It was getting dark and the wind had stopped and I'm riding along this empty road that's gradually rising up and I'm basically at the base of this shallow bowl on this road and hills are kind of rising up around me and I'm riding and it's getting darker and darker and ahead of me there isn't a single light. I look to the sides. There isn't a single light. I look all around 360 degrees probably 10, 15 miles of view in each direction. And there's not a single light. So I'm just riding and riding into the darkness. And gradually, it's dark. I'm one with the night riding along until I get to Two Dot. And I turn off for Two Dot. And there's a couple houses and a volunteer fire department and a barn. And that was June 27, 2007, Meager County. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Glad I wasn't on that trip with you. Sorry you were solo, but better you than me. <laughs> and now coming up, Tina Charpentier, who currently makes her home in Dover, New Hampshire. She's lived in the Seacoast area for most of her life, grew up on a small family farm in Kittery Point, where she was and still is fascinated with eggs and cocoons aren't we all? <laughs> in 1982, she joined the New Hampshire Air National Guard Communications Unit at Pease and spent a total of 21 years, you won't believe this when you see how young she looks, with them. Her years in the Air Force took her far from the local seacoast scene. Tina's story tonight is about an egg she found while deployed to Saudi Arabia in 1992. Its title is the egg. <laughs> well, so back in 1992, I was in the Air Force and I was riding with my buddies, Doug and Chauncey, to Al Karaj, Saudi Arabia when we saw some camels off in the desert, so we pulled over to check them out, you know, see if they were friendly. <laughs> I walked slowly towards them, but they, they were shy, I guess, and kept their distance. But that's where I found the egg rolling around. It was about the size of a ping pong ball. It was brown. We decided to keep it to see what might hatch, right? I really, I have done that always. Have you ever done that, keep cocoons or anything? Oh, I did. I was always especially amazed with insect things. Grew up on the farm. I mean, I learned enough about bugs, they pretty much got me through school. I wrote every paper and research paper and 
you know, speeches and everything about bugs. <laughs> you name it. Even to this day, though, I'm kind of hooked on, like, monarchs. Uh, our lawn looks like a madman mows it because we go around our milkweed pretty much. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I am totally humbled when one of those beauties is on my finger and we let it release, you know. But don't think for a minute that I like all bugs. I mean, let's face it, there's mosquitoes and black flies and ticks. When I get a tick on me, I, I, I get what I call the tick willies for like days. <laughs> what is that? It's got to be, can you see that? Yeah, I, I love <laughs> But then there are lightning bugs too, right? I mean, they're so cool. So the diversity is just amazing, and you can write papers all day if you need something. <laughs> We went on to El Carge that day, and our task at that time was to move an antenna from a building where they no longer needed it to a tent where they needed it. And it was about 40 feet tall and made of four-foot uh, aluminum tubes, kind of like a, a table umbrella might use, you know. But on a cement roof, there was nothing to anchor it. So it had been put in an ammo box with sand in it and then sandbags around to hold it in place. And it has four support wires, you know, in each direction, and those were also anchored with sandbags. So, you know, my buddy's Doug and Chauncey. Chauncey, he, he's smart and brave and daring. And Doug, he, well, Doug was smart, too. He was very funny, but he was really uh, waiting for his enlistment to be over. He just had had it with the military. He, he was done with this. First of all, I mean, he wasn't the outdoorsy type at all. And he didn't like bugs and creepy crawly things or heights and... We were radio maintenance techs. I mean, we run into all this all the time in our job. But I can understand his squeamishness. I mean, over there, they had, they had spiders the size of your hand, you know? I mean, it, it was creepy things. One of the security teams caught one of those and kept it, and they named it Fred. <laughs> it's gross. So I moved one of these sandbags, and uh, some lizards run out from under it, and they run over to the sandbag pile with the mast. I moved another one, and some lizards ran over to the pile Doug's working on. So I said, hey, Doug, look out. There's lizards in that pile of sandbags. And, and he had just stood up with some sandbags, and he goes, what? <laughs> and like, there's a lizard right here on the sandbag. I said, there's a, sandbag, there's a lizard right there in your sandbag. And he goes, what? Right then, he's like eye to eye with it. And it was like an E.T. moment, you know? I mean, he screams. I swear the lizard screams. He throws the whole thing. The lizard goes flying. The bags go flying. <laughs> Only happens to Doug. It does. <laughs> Poor guy. So then we had to install it in a tent. And the tent had been there a while, and the sandbags holding the flap down to the ground of the tent. And we had to put an antenna wire up under there. So we flipped a coin of who's going to move that, right? That's creepy crawl of heaven, that tent flap. So Chauncey ends up doing it, and really it was easy. There was nothing there, of course, because Chauncey would have been brave about it. But for me, really, sometimes it's the humans that are the creepy things. So this, this was a setup for the EOD team, the Explosive Ordnance Disposal guys. And I, they, I highly respect them. They have a great job, a very important job, but I don't get it. I just, you know, I think they're suspicious and they're edgy, but, I mean, they're under a lot of stress and pressure and danger. They face it every day. So I don't know if that was maybe a result of the toll of that taken on them, or if they're just like that and they're great at this job. I mean, I really don't know. Um, you know, they wanted to show us a bunch of the cool stuff they had, which, you know, I tried to act interested, but I'm really not into explosives and weapons and all that, so that was cool. 
Anyway, so when we finally returned to Escon Village, the compound where we lived, we went up to the guy's roof, the flat they lived at. It was pretty much our hangout, right? We had like a little cabana set up there. We had uh, camouflage set up for shade, and we had, uh, we had some of those announcement speakers like you often see in a MASH episode. We hooked a couple of those up to an old stereo somebody abandoned, and we strung some Christmas lights, and it was, all things considered, not a bad hangout spot. It was, you know, boredom was a challenge. I mean, work was tough, and it was hot and dry and dusty, which kept us busy all the time because it's a hazard to equipment, but that was good because when we weren't working, there was nothing to do. But now we had an egg. <laughs> so we put our egg in a jar, and we poked holes in the top of it, right? I mean, we did that as a kid, too, and one time, uh, one time we had like hundreds of little tiny praying mantises in the house, and my mother wasn't very pleased because they fit up through the holes I'd poked in the jar top. So with this new project, I wasn't taking any chances. I mean, this could be the same way, right? So we're going to keep the egg in a jar with the holes on top on the roof because it really could be an insect cocoon or a spider egg or a lizard or a snake or a bird for that matter. I don't know what it is. It was 1992. It was pre-internet. We couldn't look it up. <laughs> One of the things is in Saudi Arabia, there was tons of restrictions for women. I couldn't go to the library. It was one of them. And the guys wouldn't go for me. They said, it's probably all written in Arabic anyway, you know. So anyways, we couldn't look it up. But we checked on it every day. We'd go up there. It didn't grow. It didn't change. It didn't move. But it was something to do and something to talk about. <laughs> like I said, it was boredom. <laughs> One thing they did have, though, they had a wreck trip that would go to the zoo, like every other Friday or something, but it would only take like 30 people, and you had to sign up in advance, get put on a list, and they would choose people randomly to go. And the zoo was fairly new back then. It was uh, run by a British guy, uh, Richard Bush. Of, he was like the son of the Bush Gardens Bush people here. And uh, in Saudi Arabia, Thursday and Friday is their weekend. So like our Saturday and Sunday, our Sunday is kind of a down day there. Friday is sort of like that. So things were closed, and the zoo was closed on Friday. Therefore, he would have, us, he would have some troops come on Fridays. Well, I won the lottery. I got to go to the zoo. <laughs> Usually when I went anywhere, not a military duty, therefore not in uniform, I had to wear an abaya and a scarf. The abaya is a black gown-like covering thing, and... Well, this trip was no exception, except for when I got inside of the zoo and they closed the door. Richard said, it's just us in here and it's closed. You can take that off for the day, which was quite a treat. That seems silly now, but it was a big deal. But so was the tour. He gave a personal tour. And he did cool stuff. Uh, for example, one of the things he did was uh, demonstrated a rattler strike, right? So he had a worker, like, send a little balloon, lower balloon down into the rattlesnake cage and suddenly it pops. I mean, you never see the snake move. And one of the guys on the trip had one of those old video cameras, you know, it was like this big with VHS tapes in it and everything. Well, he played that recording back in slow motion, and still you barely saw that rattlesnake move. It was fantastic. So at some point while we were going through the zoo, I thought, geez, I should have brought the egg, right? These are the people who might know what it is. But, you know, alas, I didn't, so... 
Well, time dragged on, and we were finally getting closer to our end of tour duty there. If we were lucky, we'd get home before Christmas. And uh, the daily egg monitoring continued as well on the guy's <laughs> roof. <laughs> but still, there was nothing, and the curiosity was killing us all. We decided, let's break it. Let's see what's inside. I don't like killing anything. I I'm still one to take a spider outside and heave it and let it be, right? But, but curiosity. So we, with Doug and Chauncey watching and a few other guys, I mean, it was my egg. I carefully took it out of the jar and I set it on the roof and still feeling kind of bad about it. I, I, I stepped on it gently to crush it and it didn't do anything. It didn't crack. It didn't anything. So, uh, so I stepped harder, but still nothing. So finally, I gave it a good blow with my heel, right? And it, and it broke. So I picked it up, and everybody looks at it, and we all gathered around and looked at each other. We're looking at it. It had grass in it. I mean, it turns out it was a piece of camel poop that had been rounded <laughs> from rolling around in the desert like sea glass, right? <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't take that to the zoo. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow, as a small farmer, I do a lot in dung myself, so, yeah, wow. All right, thanks so much to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our awesome audience. We're thrilled to have such an amazing turnout. We really did not expect so many people. Um, so coming up next, we are going to hear an interview of Mike Cohen. But first, I have some other things to tell you. The most important one being that we are now entering our summer break. Okay. That means no shows or workshops for the months of July and August. So please don't come because we hate disappointing you and not being here. Okay? We will be back on Tuesday, September 25th, and our theme is Bridges, Crossings, and Connections. And we still have some slots open for that, so let us know if you have a story to share. True Tales Live, the number one, at gmail.com. Also in September, we're going to have a True Tales Live onstage performance. We do these every fall at the West End Studio Theater on Islington Street in Portsmouth. This one will happen the afternoon of September 30th. And you can watch act1nh.org or our Facebook page also. We'll put it up there for updates and uh, ticket sales when they go on sale. They aren't yet. If you would like to tell a story, or even want to consider maybe someday telling a story, we have a workshop series that we would love to see you at. Again, we won't do it in July and August. The next one is going to be September 4th. It's 7.30 to 9 here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth. And you can bring your piece, and you can tell a little, and we work with it, and it's a lot of fun. So we hope to see you. 
Watch our show on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime as video on demand on YouTube. You need to search for PPM TV True Tales Live. So let's do a couple of thanks for people who make the show possible. We're going to thank John Levering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. I am Amy Antonucci, and to, until our next show, thanks so much for listening, watching, and being here. And now, David Frainer will be up with the interview. <laughs>